Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 88. Have you ever wondered what impact the culture of your company has on your profitability and the eventual sale of your company? Well, then today is an absolute must listen to because we have on the show Sherry Deutschman, who started a company called Letter Logic and was able to grow it from zero employees in her basement up to 55 employees and $40 million in revenue, hit the Inc. 5000 11 years in a row and overpay her employees, create a profit sharing plan and this entire mix of all the things that she did allowed her to do things that almost is unheard of in business because of all the different things that are pressuring us to drop money to the bottom line. Sherry's mentality was employees first. And if employees were treated well and they had the best place to work and they were treated fairly, then everything else falls in the line. Sherry shares with us today all the different ways that she helped drive employee first culture and then what it did to her bottom line. But she also is extremely open with us on how the sale of the business and the transition out of her company impacted her identity and who she was because of how intertwined she was with her people and her culture. This episode was a long time coming since I met Sherry back in November. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the episode with Sherry. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Warren, Sherry, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you? Doing good. And we are five months in the waiting for us to finally record our, the, some of the fun conversations that we had when we met in Palm Springs. And uh, for the listeners that don't know about you, maybe can you take us back to the day that you decided to become an entrepreneur? Because I think you did some pretty cool, crazy things in order to jump in because you jumped in with both feet for sure. So what happened? Was it, Where were you? And then how did you end up doing it? Well, uh, my company is in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was working for another company in this space. And though my title was vice president of sales, my real job was a professional apologist. Um, I mean, everything (laughs) that you could do wrong, we were doing wrong. And it just got to where all I did all day long was apologize to customers for all the things that we were doing wrong. And I, I could not get my bosses to listen to my ideas for ways to improve our service. So uh, in frustration, I just quit my job and had a a week-long yard sale and sold all my personal belongings and uh, cashed in my 401k and set up shop in my basement competing with my former company. And um, it turned out pretty well. I was going to say that. So that's that's called both feet in completely. <laughs> so, Absolutely. what can you give the uh, give us a little bit of a rundown of exactly what the the nature of the business was? The company was called Letter Logic, and it was processing and delivering patient statements for hospitals. So, um, healthcare entities nationwide would send their billing data to us electronically, and then we would download the data, do some calculations for them, rearrange the data so that it looked beautiful on a page, and then we would print a physical bill and have machines that would fold it, stuff it, sort it by zip code, and then mail it. 
And at the end, we were doing about 400,000 of those a day. That, that's and there, there's a huge infrastructure because I'm familiar with your industry and how how did you end up doing that in your basement? I mean, how did you start with all? Was it did you did you have a bunch of that equipment or outsourcing that? And how did you find the clients? No, early on in my basement was uh, was me with a couple of filing cabinets that I bought from Goodwill and an old door that became my <laughs> top of those filing cabinets and. Um, I was strictly a sales organization. Um, I found a company in town that one company that I outsourced all the IT work to and then another company that I outsourced the, the physical, the fulfillment part to. And it was just a sales organization until we were about uh, two million in revenue. And then I realized I just had to start doing all those other functions myself in order to make the company scalable. So how long did it take you to what was the time frame between that and the two million? Uh, about eighteen months. Wow, that's that's pretty pretty fast growth. And what year was this that you started? And January of two thousand two. Two thousand two, and so you were going out and just finding the clients, and then at, so what were some of the things that triggered you to then bring some of that stuff in house? Was there just capacity issues, or uh, just really just the awareness that you know I was giving all my money away. Um, you know, could never really get ahead by not bringing those functions in-house and also not having control of, of the service um, and just, you know, wanted to be in mm-hmm. control of every facet of uh, the, the service for the clients. Well, and I think that kind of uh, relates to the question that I was going to ask about when you started the business in, you know, you said you were a professional apologist. It, it, what was your vision to set out? Was it, did you have like, when you were sitting in the basement by yourself or did you have like a target revenue amount? Did you have like a certain thing that like that you wanted to do to the industry to change it? Or, you know, what was getting you up? What was driving you every day? I wasn't really smart enough to think about it, you know, the way you just presented it. Um, I just knew that I could do it better than the folks that I've been working for before. And I, I pursued, um, I wasn't pursuing a particular revenue number. I was just pursuing being the best in the business. And I thought that I could accomplish that by taking better care of the employees. Because when I looked at my previous employers, like all of our problems were uh, human error, simple human error. And and I, I thought that nobody cared as much as I cared. If they had cared as deeply about the product as I cared, then we wouldn't have had all the screw-ups. So I just set out to make a culture that took such good care of the employees that because they were so engaged and cared so much that they would then take great care of the customer and the customer would take care of me by paying more for the product and that would take care of me, the shareholder. And, and I think your philosophy has a, rec- a track record of working spectacularly, right? So let's, well, <laughs> well you, what you, what some of the things that you've done that uh, the listeners need to hear about. So, so let's, let's peel that back a little bit. What, what are some of the ways that you implemented this and how did you take that idea and then actually spread that throughout um, the company? Because you, you've, You've gotten a lot of uh, attention and limelight around this because of some of the interesting things that you implemented. I think the most important thing that I did that really um, affected the, the business positively was the idea of, of sharing the profits with the employees. So I gave a, a 10% profit share every month. And 
the important part of it is that it was uh, the share was split evenly. So no matter what your role within the company, you got the same dollar amount. That meant the CFO got the same thing the truck driver got. And um, the, the point was to make everybody know that their job was just as important as every other job and getting out a perfect product at the end of the day. And no job was more important or less important than the others. And it also really changed behavior. We were very transparent with the employees to show them exactly how we made money and what how screw-ups would impact uh, profitability and how that would then affect their profit share checks. And so it, it changed the behavior of the employees and made them care a whole lot more about the, the end product. How did you get your employees to understand? Was there like financial education that you were giving? Because I think there's so much, you know, there's so much um, preconceived notions about doing what you were just saying. And I think, you know, you you saw the, the ramifications and the benefit of doing that. But, you know, there's all these reasons that people give out why they shouldn't do that. How did you teach your employees to, to get that? And how did how did you get to the point that you were okay being transparent with everybody? I think that's just my nature to be direct and, and transparent. So that wasn't that was not a hurdle for me. Um, it, there was a hurdle in it to teaching people about what created profitability within the company. And so every month we had a, a, a meeting where everybody dropped exact whatever they were doing and we came together and we reviewed the financials. We reviewed the top line revenue and bottom line and all the, the things that impacted the two. And so we could celebrate new clients and then lament, you know, big screw ups that we had internally. And, and with a company that small, initially, everybody knew if we screwed something up, everybody knew exactly what we were talking about. But we could see there live on the screen the number, uh, the dollar amount that was attributed to that. Which is it's, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, did, did you have hard times having people catch on or was it? Was it weird for people, uh, new employees, as they were coming on, the, the, the probably the shift in culture versus where they were coming from? No. You know, uh, from the beginning, the profit share checks were like $7 and then $16. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing that even at that point where, you know, the profit share check is a $17 physical check, uh, we, we celebrated that. And every person was happy to get that extra $17. But toward the end, it was almost $1,500. Wow. And, so um, every person could see our progress internally and know what was creating that higher number. And it, it's one of the few organizations that I've uh, that I've seen where people didn't resent the salespeople. Um, everybody knew that the sales team made a lot more money than everybody else, but because they were bringing in everything that drove that top line, we, we celebrated them and we did not um, resent the the bigger paychecks that they were making. And a lot of profit share systems within companies, they don't include the salespeople because they think, well, the salespeople are already the highest paid. They shouldn't have part of this. But I think that they absolutely should be included so that they are incentivized to sell the right type of account at the right price. So I think that the profit share piece all around was transformative for us and it's vital, uh, crucial to who we were and to our success. Well, and you were telling me this really cool story about um, 
like how they were making decisions together on a team. And I can't remember exactly what I was sharing, but it was like, you know, there was like, we needed to hire someone. And then you had these two people sat down and you know, they kind of went through it. Does that ring a bell at all? I mean, I don't know, maybe it's that example, or you got another example of how people would solve problems in the bigger picture. Oh, um, can, can give you a dozen examples, but the one you're talking about is where the sort team said they needed uh, two more people. And so I sat with them and said, fine, we can absolutely do that. We I agreed to bring on the two people. And then I said, have y'all discussed how this is going to affect profit share? If we have two more people with which to share that pie, with whom to share that pie, what does that do? And somebody did the calculations very quickly and said, ooh, well, we need to think about this. <laughs> and so they came back the next day and said, oh, we figured this out. We've totally got it. We only need one person. Problem so, solved, right? <laughs> it changed their behavior that way. How about the culture? So, you, I mean, you got the profit sharing, which is at the core of the financials, which you said changed a lot of people's behaviors. What are some of the other things in your culture that were changing behaviors or what was some of the, the impact on the behaviors that you noticed? Well, I'd say, you know, uh, the other, the second most important thing we did was make sure that everybody was paid fairly, uh, a fair living wage. And for us, we looked at the two lowest paid employees in the company and determined if these two people get married, in what neighborhood can they afford to live? Uh, what schools can their children attend? Will they make enough money to to save money and to be able to afford an education for their children or to be able to afford a vacation even? And so um with that in mind, our starting minimum wage is was sixteen dollars an hour in the factory, where in in Tennessee it's seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour. So we paid more than double what what we could have gotten away with in Tennessee because we wanted people to be able to focus on their jobs when they were at work, not whether or not their lights would be on when they came home. Well, and didn't you like see someone speak and you came home and didn't it took you a couple of tries to get to that sixteen dollar figure, didn't it? Yes. We were at $12 an hour, and then somebody told me this theory of, of looking at the, the two lowest paid people and what happened if they got together. And so immediately, within about 48 hours, I had changed our minimum wage to $14 an hour. And then I kept doing the math, and I just, I just had to make it $16 an hour because no matter how I did the math, $16 an hour in Nashville was the, the magic number that would make somebody be able to have, um, you know, a, a fair living wage. And wasn't there the, a specific um, woman or employee that was working a bunch of jobs and then all of a sudden, I mean, cause like it like changed people's lives. Just that whole, that just that one move. It's changed so many lives. One woman is my age. I'm 58. And, and she said this, th- at that point, making $16 an hour, it was the first time in her entire life that she'd been able to work only one job. And ironically, she was now working just one job and taking her grandchildren in so her daughter could work a second and third job. So uh, it's just a crazy cycle. But I have another employee, Maria, who when we hired her at $16 an hour, she was able to work just 40 hours and go home and take care of the kids. And her husband, who's a highly skilled construction worker, could for the first time take on overtime because he didn't have to be home with the children. And they were able to, in 18 months, save fifty thousand dollars to buy their first home that's so crazy is, is she the one that was the the story about you guys potentially because you did some really interesting things about helping people get into first 
houses and such like that, right? I mean, was that the example or maybe give the listeners a, um, some of the other interesting things that you were doing to help your employees actually have better lives? Yeah, well, some of our other benefits were the ability to bring your kids and your pets to work. And so the pets were there regularly. The kids were there on snow days or, or um, holidays that uh, where, you know, they needed to be at work, but, you know, they just brought their kids in. And then we also helped people buy their first home. So a gift toward the down payment of their first houses. And so I think through that program, we helped 19 employees buy homes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's, you know, it's such a different perspective of instead of using the employees as worker bees and shippers and doers and cogs and actually helping them change their lives. And I I, I find it just the question that I think a lot of people have, Sherry, is how do you afford that? So did you just have a really profitable industry where you're able to just, you know, kind of like Google, just give stuff away and have lattes and all that stuff? Or what, you know, how, <laughs> right? I think that that's a big challenge because there's, you know, that the whole minimum wage thing right now is, is on the hot uh, topic list for a lot of retailers, a lot of people where they, they rely on these uh, lower income people. So where's the, is it, is it the chicken or the egg? I mean, what did you experience? When people ask me, um, you know, how could you afford to do this? You know, my stock response to them and to you right now is that we weren't successful in spite of the crazy benefits that we provided. We were only successful because of it. We were actually, I entered the the industry um, when the market was mature. I I didn't know enough about business at the time to know that I was entering a a mature market. It was mature and very um, commoditized, very thin margins. And so uh, I I knew that we had to be as error-free as possible to eke out a living um, doing it. And that was having a culture that took care of the employees seemed to me to be the best way to uh, drive profitability. It was just a common sense approach to me that really did work. And so I looked at all those things that we did for the employees. It was an investment. Was there you? I think you were telling. How did that? How did how did your customers see the impact? And how did your pricing? You told me some some interesting facts about you know your pricing and the margins and the interactions with the customers. How did that ripple effect all the way go all the way down to the actual transaction of your services? That's a, a really good point. So. Our culture became, you know, we didn't spend any money in marketing. Our culture became uh, marketing, the marketing tool, because when employee, uh, potential clients heard about our culture, they immediately recognized how that would affect the service that they were getting. And so we have many customers who said, we chose you because of that. We knew that having people totally engaged in taking care of the business would uh, positively affect us. And so it enabled us to be the price leaders nationwide. So we we were 10% higher than just about anybody else in the industry and still grew at the, uh, a pace that allowed us to be on the Inc. 5000 list for 11 straight years. Well, that's crazy. So go one layer deep deeper for the for the listeners. And what what are some of the major milestones over the course of the years that you hit from employee size or revenue size, whatever you're willing to disclose? Um, well, we started in January 2002 with just uh, two employees, and when I sold the company 
2016, we had 54 employees um, and we grew from zero to 40 million in revenue and, um, you know, sustained growth, especially, I, I guess we, we were at the beginning year of ink tracking these growing companies. So for every year, uh, we were on that 5,000 list. That's crazy. I mean, that sustainable growth like that, because some people hit it once or twice, but that's way different than obviously you had implemented something, especially with your culture that made your, I mean, your company a marketing machine. That's so. What, what, one year, one year we were number 4,999, but we still made the list. <laughs> hey, that's a, that, that's all that counts. You're on the list. <laughs> what, where was it, Sherry? I mean, like you did, where was it that happened for you to decide that this was going to be something that you wanted to sell? I mean, was there a triggering event? I mean, you, how much you loved your employees and your culture and everything like that? What, what made you decide that this might be the right time to sell? Well, we had gone through a phase of profitable month after month. Maybe we'd had 60 or 70 months of profitability and back to back two months, I lost money. And then had to go in front of the employees uh, with this full transparency and say, we didn't make money, so there no, there's no profit to share. And I realized that it was my fault that we were losing money because I was pursuing, you know, what I call now a, a shiny object. Uh, while our company had historically printed and mailed bills, the industry was going toward uh, having um, everything done electronically. And I was, pers- I was uh, trying to build a machine internally for us to be able to do that instead of partnering with third parties. And I had spent millions of dollars uh, pursuing this e-commerce model when I realized that that was um, really not good for the company and that I was really trying to become something that we weren't. We were a great service company and instead of embracing that, I was chasing something else. And so when that when I realized that and started um, you know, dropping that pursuit, for the first time ever, our bottom line started really outgrowing the top line. And you saw a chart. <laughs> if there's a chart in front of you of, of our history from day one to that moment, anybody in the business of selling companies would tell you that was exactly the right time to sell because we had uh, 12 months of the bottom line shooting straight up. And the top, the top line still growing um, significantly. And so from the trailing 12 months EBITDA picture, which is how companies, the company valuations are created often, um, it was just exactly the right time to sell. And it coincided with the fact that uh, my granddaughter, a teenager, was coming to live with me. And I knew I needed to be more available to, to be a mom again, in a sense, for a while. And so just... Uh, was there um, someone that mentioned to you, like, where did you get that, okay, this is the right time to sell? Was there like, you know, was it a peer group? Was it an advisor? Was it someone in the industry? Was there maybe just, you know, your education over the time? Oh, Lord, no. Uh, it was a an outsider. Brad Stevens is his name. And I had hired him to be um, interim COO just to help me figure out, you know, what was wrong and why we were losing money. And I I knew it instinctively, but I just wasn't willing to face it. And so within a few weeks, he sized up what the problem was and was very direct with me about the situation and what I needed to change. And so I just listened to him. And then he he started a process with my leadership team where every Monday and every Thursday, we had a mini valuation. 
staff leadership team. Why, and, why those dates? Um, well, we had our leadership meeting every Monday and then every Thursday just to, to see where we were. And you would think that a company valuation can't change much from a Thursday to a Monday. But if you lose a big customer, it can change a lot. Or if you add a good size customer, the valuation can change a lot. And it did. And so it made all of us aware of what was driving the, the value of the company and changed our behavior too. What are what are some of the value drivers that's ended up sticking out for you? Most importantly, I think uh, having the right pricing model. Um, I realized that a lot of our biggest customers are flagship customers we weren't making any money on. And what's the point in having them if you don't make money on them? So um, I personally called each of them and said, I'm raising your rate. This is how much. And um, it's um, amazing, but not a single customer left us. Interesting. How did you get, was it like some sort of like deep dive into like the, the, the contracts with them or like, you know, did, how did you end up finding that you were losing money on them? Just looking at, you know, profitability overall and how much energy and how much of our resources these larger clients took. Um, and, that you know, the larger clients had the lowest prices, but they were consuming most of the company resources and um, just asking them to pay more. And they were willing to do it. I think that scares the heck out of a lot of people. I remember going through that with our business. And, you know, I it's, it's a very, very common, you know, trap that entrepreneurs get into, you know, was there some way that you relate it to them? Was there any kind of tips that you have on like, how do you even have that hard conversation? Um, I, I think it mattered a lot to the customers that I did it myself. I didn't put it off on anyone else. I called the highest level person within each organization with, with whom uh, that I dealt with. So if it was CEO to CEO or sometimes CEO to the CFO, I made the call myself and said, you know, I hate to deliver this bad news, but I have to raise your rate and this is why. And I went into every single phone call knowing that I might lose the customer, but that the, our company was better off not having this customer if they weren't profitable. And, and then it kind of, it, was, it became fun, actually. And to have the conversations with the, the customers who were laughing, a few laughed at me and said, man, I wish I had the courage to do this. <laughs> so you've you're set a great example for me. And, and the fact that we could do all that and not lose any customer really spoke to uh, how well our business model worked, how well that employee first business model affected the customer and affected their loyalty to us. And you, well, and when you're probably doing that, now you've got 55 employees looking at you going, Sherry, you got to go call these people because we want our, our bonus checks. Oh, <laughs> exactly. exactly. uh, that's awesome. So, um, well, you know, Sherry, as you're going through this and you're having these little mini business valuations, I mean, how did your, did your mindset shift at all? And like, start planning or like, what is, what did, like, what is this going to look like? Or how did you, you know, how did you go from starting to do that to actually engaging in the, the process to, to the actual sale? Um, well, it started with hiring a, a business broker. Um, I hired uh, Mike Nolan of Empire Business Brokers in Raleigh, North Carolina. And he had a really unique approach to brokering a company in that um, he he does free valuations for companies. Um, and he just hopes that eventually when you're ready to sell, you'll use him. But he took a, a, like a teacher's stance. I mean, he taught us my executive team, exactly what was driving profitability and what would drive the value of the company. 
and what were things that we were doing that would not increase the value of the company. And so he calmly and quietly and humbly taught us and it became really a, a fabulous learning process, but it was fun. The process of getting the company ready to sell was the most fun we ever had. And especially when, when you can see little tweaks that you can make to the business model that make everything tighter and more scalable, it was it was a blast. What, what are some of those besides the pricing model that he that he exposed? Uh, I think that the impact of just having one extra person that if there was not an ROI on that person, that's the one that I can think of right now. So it, no, that's that's totally fine. And I'm curious, you know, so he's a business broker, and I think there's a lot of confusion sometimes out in the marketplace, like who is a broker, what kind of service do you get versus an investment banker, and you know, at 40 million in revenue, you're you're totally investment banking material. Was he actually investment banker, or did did you was there any kind of difference in what how he approached it versus how some of the other people do? No, I mean, I, I interviewed several people. I interviewed some of those investment bankers to talk to them about selling the company. I, I just liked his approach more. Um, he had been with Ernst & Young for years and is a CPA and also a lawyer. So he's very smart, but he really just took more of a, a, a teacher's uh, or a, coach, a coach's standpoint and wasn't pushing us to sell the company, just telling us when you get ready to, this is the, these are things that will you get the highest price for the company. So as he's doing, and, then, and he's educating you, was there a, a, like a triggering event or somewhere in the process that you said, okay, now is the time? It was just looking at the, the trailing 12 months picture. So then I, what? So then you engage with him and then did he, so did you have an idea of who would be the buyer? I mean, like in your mind, because I mean, as entrepreneurs, a lot of us are visionaries and I know you've got a lot of aspirations of, of, of big things. So did you have an idea of what this was, that what this journey was going to look like? Sort of. Um, we had had a lot of interest for the past, you know, for the previous five years from people wanting to buy the company. And most were competitors, but other people who just wanted to buy a company like ours to sell and scale, um, to, to, to buy to scale and sell, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, w- you know, we had a short list of people we knew would be interested uh, and Mike expanded that list, and so he he cast a fairly broad net, and we had several buyers at the table. And so, uh, you know, he coached us on on um, you know answering their questions and doing the quote unquote dog and pony show. Mm-hmm. The, so the dog and pony show, I think, is an interesting. <laughs> what, what were some of the things that you found throughout the process that people were looking for? I mean, did you, you know, is there any kind of takeaways you had over? The dog and pony show and how the different buyers like different things. I mean, what was what was your favorite favorite part or most interesting part about it? Well, you know, some people were looking for, you know, a business in a box, something that would operate totally on its own and that they would not have to be involved in it all, just you know, a cash machine. And others were really looking for, you know, companies that they could run. And so the difference between the two is that some would want to keep our entire leadership team and every employee intact. And that was vital to me. And others were upfront about the fact that, yeah, we're going to replace your entire leadership team because we want to be the leadership team, but we will keep your other employees. What were some of the, I mean, because you had mentioned it on the employee side, what were some of your table stakes that this is what I have to have? Was it a dollar amount in the bank? Was it, you know, culture, employees, what they were going to do with the business? What were some of the things that were crazy important to you? Uh, most importantly was that they would take care of the employees and try to maintain the culture that we had 
and you know, I also had a dollar figure of you know, but what what was enough for me to be able to move on to the next phase of my life. So it was a, it was a combination of things. Was uh, how did how did you handle that when you're when you're sitting across from these buyers and you've got these fifty people plus that are sitting there that are your family? How did you? I mean, how were you? How were you gut checking them and whether they could, I mean, you could, you're graduating your kids to someone else to be watched. I don't know if that's a weird analogy, but I mean, how, how are you mentally and personally going through that? Uh, what I try to make them see is that the reason you want this company, the reason we're so attractive on paper is because of the people and because of our culture and taking care of the people. That is exactly what's driven the value of this company. And please remember that. And try to keep all of these things that we have going right now in place. If if and I, I wanted to gauge their their commitment to keeping the the culture in place, and um, having them come in and meet some of the employees, or noticing the employees as they watch as as they walk through and see how engaged they were. How, how did you make sure that you know as you were structuring the deal? Um, and I don't know what kind of advisors you had at the table, but making sure that. Because when you, you know, for example, if, it, if it's a PE firm or if it's a venture capital or if it's, you know, they look at a company like yours and they understand, you know, how to squeeze more, you know, blood out of the turnip. I mean, was there stuff in language that you put in there to make sure that there were certain things that were taken care of? Or was it just more of like, hey, more on an oversight of, hey, we just want to make sure that it's a good culture fit. Was there certain, how did you guys end up structuring that? I would, I would probably structure it a little differently now in hindsight, but we tried to make sure that there, there was a good cultural fit. So though we had several prospective buyers and several offers, we ultimately chose one that um, it was a PE firm that was buying us to combine us with a, another company in their space that in our space that they'd already bought. Um, and we already knew and liked the leadership team of the other company and felt like they would most probably most be able to protect the culture that we built. So was there other people that were, so if they were in the same industry, were there other buyers that were in different industries or customers or like, what were some of the other backgrounds of the other buyers? Uh, several others in the industry and um, other wannabes. I mean, people who just really wanted to get into the healthcare revenue cycle part. Um, was there, was there, so when you said there's a couple of things you would have done differently, I mean, what, you know, maybe we, before we go into the, after you had signed the deal and some of the time afterwards, I mean, you know, when you're getting, when you sat at that table and you're signing those documents and did you feel the deal momentum, you know, rush that a lot of the entrepreneurs feel where it's just driving forward and you haven't had time to mentally process it. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there at the signing table. Can you kind of walk us through what was going on in your head when you were sitting there actually realizing what was going on? I don't know that I went through that. I know that there was a process if maybe in the last 30 days when, when the final parts of the due diligence are being done and they're missing documents here and there and everyone is frantically looking for those documents and i, I think it must be like um well for me it was like planning your wedding and it's just you're getting cold feet the last few days before the wedding but you've already got all the guests are are on their way <laughs> and the cake is already in the oven and you realize you have to go through it with that i've probably had a little bit of that and mostly it was around my people knowing that I would be walking out and leaving this group of people that, that, that I, that I love, that I'm really close to. Uh, how did, did your employees know that what was going on or like, like who was involved in that? 
Um, I didn't tell them. Um, I told the leadership team. Um, there were a total of six of us, and I told them and uh, and gave them a nice chunk of of uh, cash to you know, as a percentage of the deal for them to be engaged because I told them they'd probably never work harder in their lives than they would during that 18-month process to get the company ready. And um, so I, I told them. And then I told the um, employees after the day the deal was done. So um, I brought everybody together in one room and um, told them that I had sold the company and that my last day would be the following Monday. And um, was that hard? Oh, I, I cry now telling you about it. So yes, it it was hard. Um, but I, I was. You know, through the years of giving 10% of the profit monthly to the employees, I was able to give 15% of the cash price to the employees at the end. And for the first time, it wasn't split evenly. It was split based on their tenure within the company. And so it was pretty funny to be with somebody that, you know, I would ask. If I had one-on-one meetings with every single employee and said, if I were able to give you $10,000, what would you do with it? And to have them talk about what they might do with it and then to be able to say, well, here, here's 50,000. Uh, you know, hope you enjoy this. But to see how they treated the money after that. I mean, and one, of the, one of the most satisfying things that happened the entire time I owned the company came as a result of this gift that I was able to give each person. When a 25-year-old woman approached me two months after the sale, to tell me that she had paid her parents' house off with her money. Oh, how cool. They, um, they were Serbian refugees, and she had overheard them talking about when, as soon as they got their house paid off, they would be able to send funds uh, to Serbia to help some relatives there find a home. And so she just said, I'm paying it off for you, Mom and Dad. And she said she would not have thought about doing something like that had she not been in the letter logic environment of taking care of each other and treating everybody like family. That was very satisfying. Well, it's, some, it's something that ref- has a direct reflection of you and how you how you manage the the culture and the morality. It, it, what was it like? So aside from giving people the money, which is got to feel unbelievable, but how did you feel knowing that you were no longer going to be part of that community anymore? Uh, sad. Uh, I made the mistake of um, I was asked to, although it was an all-cash deal, I was invited to invest in the new entity and to to be a member of the board. Um, And so I I chose to go that route. And um, so I told them, you know, I'll be around. I'll be on the board. I'll be able to influence from that vantage point. And... um, it's just really hard to be a minority shareholder <laughs> and, and not really have the control that I was accustomed to. So about six months into my investment, um, I just, um, you know, just, uh, cashed out and, and exited the board too. It was just too difficult. Um, what, what were some of the difficult things other than the control? I mean, what did, how did the things change as far as, the culture, the operations, were there things there that you were watching, not having control of that were very difficult? Yeah, well, the, the first thing that changed was they did away with the profit share model. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, 
and instead instituted a, a matching 401k, which was nice. And, and I can see benefits to that for helping employees learn to you know, plan ahead and manage their money better. But it was so integral to who we were that that was, you know, pretty, uh, pretty painful. So um, did it affect the culture at all? Um, I, I think it did. Uh, a lot of the employees left. But, you uh, know, a I, lot I think, of them, like as in like a good chunk or? I would say that probably uh, only 50 percent of the employees that were there when I left are still there now. 50 or 15? I'd say 50. Okay. Wow. That's guessing. How did, you know, I'm curious because I went through this and I've heard so many stories now, Sherry. How did the employees and the executive team look at you afterwards in that six months? I mean, did they engage with you the same or was it different? Did they, how did they handle that? I think that was the hardest part for me is that the, the senior leadership team really wanted to, you know, have the autonomy and to, to be on their own with this other management team they were they were uh, paired with. And so in the first few weeks, they made a few phone calls to me. And then after that, it was only in crisis they would call. Um, and the other employees, you know, I have a, a closer relationship with. I think I, I see them fairly often. But it was uh, I, I'm surprised that none of them were angry at me or resented me for for selling they were grateful for you know the time that we had together and um and for you know being part of something really fabulously unique and i, I love the way uh, the employees that are still there have have kind of banded together uh and create for themselves within these little little circles the same culture that we had and it was a hard realization for me that you know, the goals of private equity, um, they're not evil. They're just their goals are different than the goals of the founder entrepreneur. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because I, I think the listeners need to really understand that. Well, the goal for me as, you know, as, a, as the founder of the company uh, was about building the best company I could build. And the tightest company and, you know, a group of happy employees. And, you know, the group, uh, the, the goal of private equity is to satisfy the needs of the shareholder and so um so how would you have you know when you when you think about these entrepreneurs that are potentially going to go through the sale or the exit over the next handful of years how do you figure out what those goals are and how do you align those up i mean and would you have done anything differently yes (laughs) (laughs) well well, maybe let's start with that what what do you what would you have done differently to have a different outcome I think that now, with hindsight being 2020, 20, 18 months later, um, I would not have been acquired. I would have done the acquisition myself. I would have, um, I, I thought that my smaller company could really um, infect the larger organization with our positive culture and the family like culture. And I think that's really hard for a smaller group to do that. So I would have been the acquirer and just handheld the process to to have the culture uh, shift to the other company too. I think yeah. Well, you know, when you have two way different cultures, I think it's you know it's it, it can really affect the success of the of the merger or acquisition. And you know, it, how do you you know? I think you and I were talking at breakfast that one morning. Is you know the PE the PE um, 
industry or that whole world. It's like the checkers versus 3D chess, where, you know, as an owner, you've built this amazing thing and you're, you know, you're playing the game of, you know, changing an industry or changing a culture. And then all of a sudden you sit at the table and it's trying to understand their motives and, you know, what their goals are. How, how, you know, do you have any advice from what you've gone through on questions to ask and how to understand whether that buyer and that situation is going to actually accomplish what you want? Um, I don't, but that's a good Great question. I need to to ponder that. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that, Ryan. No, no. I think it's I think it's it's very it's totally fine because I I don't know either. That's why I asked because you know a lot you know Bo Burlingham in his book Finish Big talks about knowing who you are, what you want from your business, and why. And if you know that, that's great. But you still don't necessarily know how to align and who this person is that's sitting across from you, what they're going to end up doing with your quote unquote baby. And it's very difficult to to understand that. Yeah, and you really have no control over it, and um, maybe some some influence, but no control. Right. What? What did? How did you mentally handle the transition after? So after that six months, I mean, internally, did you were you okay with it, or were you? Did you have any regret, or I mean, how were you dealing with that? Um, I, you know, regrets probably. I cried a lot. Um, part of it was about losing my own identity, you know, being just totally consumed with building this company for 14 years and then one day not being involved at all and not, not being invited to the company Christmas party and not being invited to the company summer party. It was really, really difficult. But I, I just, you know, remember what, you know, my passion was around helping other people and especially helping people achieve financial independence through entrepreneurship, you know, which was something that I'd done at LetterLogic. I help employees build their companies and even finance their companies. And so, you know, now I spend the, you know, a lot of my time doing that. Uh, I started a, an angel investment firm to help women uh, scale their businesses. And uh, I'm mentoring over 17. <laughs> it's crazy. And, <laughs> 17 uh, people. Growing their businesses. So, I was just able to refocus my attention away from the letter logic family and more toward the entrepreneurs. So Sherry, what are some things that helped you in that transition? And was there books, was there people like, how did you actually process that and actually go through the shift? That's a great question. I had been a member of EO, but I dropped out of EO when, uh, you know, because I was just too busy to attend the forums, I told myself. And so as soon as I sold the company, one of the first things that I did was rejoin EO because I felt like I needed to, you know, keep my chops up in regards, uh, uh, you know, leading a company in case I ever wanted to do it again. And I found such consolation through them and through um, consolation and encouragement, you know, that I still had value to to bring and uh, you know wealth of experience to share with other people, so uh, I could get satisfaction that way. What did you feel the need to jump right in? Did you give yourself some time? How did you? You know, so obviously getting some help here. I mean, the reason I asked that year is so many entrepreneurs they either like jump right into something or you know deploy all their money and they like in search of trying. So it's like failing in search of trying to find your new identity. I mean, how did did you give yourself some time or did you immediately jump right in or how did how did you go about that? 
somebody gave me a book called uh, Crazy Times uh, when I sold the company, which was uh, how you really go kind of crazy when you first sell a company and you spend too much money or, or you start a new company too quickly. Um, and so I was mindful of all that. Um, and I, I was a little cautious. I think I should have been a little more cautious in regards, you know, philanthropic activities. I just said yes to everything that came my way, thinking I would have tons of free time, and and I don't. But um, I, although I invested in some you know, women-owned businesses about that time, I've, I've been very careful with my money. So what uh, what is on the agenda f- in today's time? Because I know you got a book that you're working on. Um, maybe give us a little bit of, you know, What's the premise of the book? How did you pack all this passion and experience? And what's kind of the message of it? Uh, the book is called SQS, um, The Status Quo Sucks. <laughs> that was our motto at Letter Logic, you know, to, to encourage everybody to don't, don't be afraid of making a mistake. You know, we can correct a, a wrong, but just, you know, always be willing to try something new. And um, The Status Quo Sucks is about... Um, you know, my belief that cause, that every company would be more successful if it took better care of their people. And so um, I talk about, you know, what that meant to us practically and some, you know, wonderful programs that we have within the company, you know, a favorite of which was my practice of what, what I call lunch with Lucy, which was uh, Wednesdays uh, were open for any employee to take me to lunch. Um, they would choose the restaurant and they would choose who else would accompany us. I would pick up the tab, but we would go and talk about anything that they wanted to talk about. And that lunch with Lucy gave me tremendous insight into uh, things that were going on within the company that I would not have been aware with, aware of otherwise. But it also gave me insight into that person and what, what drove them and what their dreams and passions were so that I could help them realize some of their dreams. And so, you know, the book was practical tips for ways for employees to employers to engage with the employees without breaking the bank. But I, that's so awesome. I mean, I think it, it, you know, it's all the compounding little things and really caring. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, you can just sense that with your genuine care that, you know, people are willing to go the extra mile, but it's because you, it's a mutual relationship. It's not a dictatorship at all. Uh, I, I love those people. Um, I mean, I, I'm, we built the company together. I could not have done their jobs and I miss them. Well, and I, I love it. And is it, you know, when we think about all the things that we've talked about, Cher, is there is there something that you want to highlight? Is there the and make sure that you, you leave the listeners with her? If there's something maybe we haven't touched on um, about culture or the actual selling or transition. I mean, is there one thing that you want to leave them with? You know, over the last um, year and a half since I sold the company, I've had so many other entrepreneurs approach me that have sold their businesses and either stayed in for, um, you know, a a tale of 18 months to five years and those who did and those who didn't. And I can tell you without a doubt, the happiest ones are the ones who exited with the sale and had zero involvement after that. And every one of us, that, that I've talked to, they all believe that the company is healthier because of it. And the employees were able to make uh, an easier transition because of it. Were they uh, ready? Those people that were really happy, were, did they see that? And were they emotionally and, you know, socially prepared to walk away? Yes. Um, 
you know, one, made sure that he was socially <laughs> prepared for it by planning for the entire next year to be uh, traveling around the country so that he would not be would not be here to, to witness the 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 pain. <laughs> What, and just to, I, I think you it's interesting how you how do you label it as pain so what, what do you think is so painful about it well to me it was really really was like giving up a child and um and interviewing potential parents for the child and hoping that uh the parent would the new parent would love the child as much as you did and um and it's in hindsight, it's not that the new parent doesn't love the child the same way. It's just that they, it's not that they don't love them as much as they love them differently. And yeah, no, I think that's a really good way to articulate it. And because, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's very intangible sometimes, isn't it? Yes. Yes. If there's a good way for our listeners to get in touch with you and to look out for the book and um, that's coming out soon, what is the best uh, way for them to reach you? The best way is to email me at uh, sherry at sherrydeutschman.com. Um, LinkedIn is a, is a good way to get to me, too. Sherry, I'm so happy we've got to finally reconnect, and then thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ryan. It was my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sherry and thanks for sticking until the end. My main takeaway is that Sherry had the tenacity to really enact the employee's first mentality that a lot of us owners know we should have, but we always get stuck looking at the bottom line. And she had the faith and the longevity to implement the hard processes and procedures that allowed her to measure what she was doing. Training and educating your employees on the financials, making sure that you're guiding and mentoring your employees and then being able to filter out the people that don't fit within the culture is really important. And Sherry genuinely cared about the people. So it wasn't some fake facade that she was putting on in order to make her look good or her company look good. It was something that she truly believed was going to make an impact. And by changing lives, the ripple effect happens within the business, but then it directly affects your clients, your suppliers, and everybody that is associated with your company. And she proved by her numbers, her financials, and what she got for her company that it was worth the effort. And I think if there's one other main takeaway, it is that she and every one of us that has an employee culture first company has to understand the integration that that business and community has with our identity and our social being because it is like ripping yourself away from a group of friends if you sell to a third party and drastically have to remove yourself from that entire environment. So knowing what you want from your business, why you want it, is extremely important. If you enjoyed the episode, go on to iTunes and give us a rating. Otherwise, check the rest out on iTunes and I will see you next week.